The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis, James Fegan, and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, February 19th, 2024. Happy President's Day, especially for those that have bank holidays off in your corporate world. We at Sox Machine are still hard at work as the White Sox continue to prep for spring training games. And now the position players should be reporting to Glendale, Arizona, and we'll learn more about the White Sox goals to improve their woeful offense a season ago. But on the pitching side, there are big questions surrounding Michael Kopech and Garrett Crochet. The latter wants to be a starting pitcher and is introducing a new pitch that we'll talk about in a moment. The former and Kopech is trying to rediscover his best self and find a way to make that version the norm. We've seen Kopech dominate, especially last year against Kansas City and Cleveland, but great starts are the outliers in Kopech's starting career. Helping both is the new director of pitching for the Chicago White Sox, Brian Bannister. We'll learn later in the show how he's helping Kopech, Crochet, and other White Sox pitchers. Oh, and there's another update regarding the South Loop project for the Chicago White Sox. We now know how much Jerry Reinsdorf is asking for. Lots to discuss, so let's get started. Joining me is our beat reporter down in Arizona, James Fegan, and the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis, and hello, James and Jim. Jim, I'll start with you first. We have some exciting news as Sox Machine just hit a milestone. Yes, we reached 1,000 Patreon supporters early on Sunday morning, and they've continued to trickle in. So we are currently at 1,008 when I'm looking at this. Hopefully when people are listening to it uh, in the morning, afternoon, that number will continue to rise higher. But yeah, that's one big one because it's nice four figures, a uh, nice round number that everybody kind of measures by. Typical milestone, but also just it was one of those figures we had in mind in terms of like, need to get there before the season starts to have a real good feeling about where this is going. And we're ahead of schedule in that regard. So that's cool. Still have many milestones to hit to, uh, you know, make sure that we can do a living, make sure that we can uh, you know, send James out on the road more. But Early on, uh, you know, looking at all the people who responded to uh, James's uh, 
tweet informing people he's laid off from the athletics saying, oh, I'll subscribe to you wherever you go. And I have not had to harass those people uh, in their mentions, say, where are you? I know your name. I don't see you here. <laughs> you know, be, be a man or woman of your word. I don't have to do that anymore. So, uh, so far, so good. And, uh, you know, hopefully as uh, the stories continue to roll out from uh, James and then like once we get him on the road too, like I think there'll be a few different entry points as far as people checking in the season and hopefully we'll continue to prove our value every one of those uh you know steps along the way well i guess the good news is james is that we don't have to go and hire liam neeson uh maybe get a cameo from liam neeson we could just have jim do it because that was pretty intimidating i mean liam neeson would only push up the subscriber total we have to hit even more so lead to an escalating chain of violence i feel could we get Liam Hendricks? I think I think Liam's still uh, soliciting offers at this point. All right. I thought uh I I thought he was gonna announce uh, where he was gonna be playing, uh, but if he didn't make that announcement, he's still a free agent. And as we record, he's still a free agent, so we'll see what his plans are. There's always the option that when he is healthier, that he could throw, have a, I guess a, an audition for teams okay. during the season. Yeah. And then uh, he can get signed in July or August and uh, help out a team before the postseason. Uh, he's still getting one and a half million dollars from the White Sox over the next ten seasons. It's it's also possible he could have like a normal recovery timeline and just not pitch this season because like very true. Davis Martin's probably like on a fourteen month track. Or like Liam doesn't have to beat every estimate by four months for everything every time. Yeah, his body has uh, has gone through a lot, especially the last couple of years. Moving over to the White Sox side, the White Sox have a record 70 players right now in spring training camp. And James, I, I should just ask the simple question. Why? Why are the White Sox carrying so many players at camp? I mean, I guess because they're trying to. I've never seen actually the movie Battle Royale uh, as much as I've heard about it, but um it you know, it's kind of like you don't have this set bullpen, you don't have this set roster that you've had the last couple of years it, it makes sense you're they have these like a really long slate of projects and they talk about them pretty earnestly at least Banster did that they're trying to just basically see making a bunch of plays with a lot of their non-roster contracts and seeing if they can make these guys pop uh in a way that you know maybe some characteristic of their stuff or maybe some past success indicates that they could be restored to at some point uh, upside surprises is a term that he uses. And they, I think they just collect in the lack of, you know, actual budget room or even maybe will to commit to a free agent, given where they're at and their cycle. It's like, let's just take a series of tryouts, like just buy a bunch of scratch off tickets and, and see what hits. And that's, that's really probably going to be even as much as Jim broke down, you know, uh, on Sunday, how many guys like have opt outs or are out of options or um, other reasons why it's, there's a little bit of pressure to um, make a call on them. They really don't have a lot of time in their hands as far as commitments. I, mean, I think if you, you know, let Davey Garcia hit waivers because he doesn't, he didn't have a good spring. I, I think you're probably willing to call it, call, call the experiment off at that point. So um, I, I think they're in that position with a lot of guys and, you know, talking to a lot of like relievers who are NRIs talking to Joe Barlow today is like, why did you come here? It's like, they said, I have an open opportunity to make the roster. So that seemed like a good shot for me. Whereas maybe other guys, it's kind of more cut and dry that they'd have to, you know, dominate triple a for a month or two to really get a mid season call up. 
everyone here, no one here has any reason to not think that the open day slot could be theirs if they show out. So I, I think that's ruined a lot of people. Um, maybe people who might be on their way out uh, of the majors uh, otherwise, or certainly if this doesn't work out, like if, if Mike Moustakas can't break camp with the White Sox, I don't know what the next thing is for Mike Moustakas, but I, I, I feel like we have a lot of guys in that same same spot. Taiwan. Yeah, Taiwan, South Korea, the Savannah Bananas. <laughs> he, he's got options if he doesn't make the White Sox. Uh, Ted Mulvey, if you're listening to this podcast episode, I do not need this sporacle. All right, we don't need name all 70 players that showed up to the 2024 spring training camp. Like, I don't want to get embarrassed because, like, my goal would be, can I get 60%, Jim, uh, of them correct? I It's so many players at camp, and one of them that has just showed up uh, was an old friend, but now is a current friend. Brian Shaw is one of those recent non-roster invitees, and you wrote on SoxMachine.com over the weekend why you think he has a track of making the team And even with that opt-out stipulation, I think it could be valuable to have a rubber arm reliever like Brian Shaw for the 2024 season. Do you agree with that sentiment, Jim? Yeah, as long as he's the same guy and like he didn't happen to represent, resemble that kind of form that he had the last two months because he had a four-month tune-up essentially in the minor leagues and a whole lot of runway to get right. Because even in July, when he first arrived with the White Sox and they still had all of the relievers they'd yet to trade. Like he was pretty lousy in July and he was lucky probably that he endured that long. Uh, the all-star break probably helped as well to kind of spare him a little bit, but it wasn't until everybody was traded and they were down to the dregs that anybody who could respectably and reliably retire hitters on a regular basis uh, would be given lots and lots of opportunities. And he certainly ran with that. So it would stand to reason that he would get that same opportunity again. Griffo liked managing him because he really didn't have to give him any consideration whatsoever, especially like at the end of the season, five games in a row to end the year and five hitless innings to end the year for Shaw. So there's a lot of just, familiarity and simplicity there if he's the same guy and if it's not a case of just like he got you know he's in his mid-30s now around the you know closer to 40 than 30 and he's got like a he needs a lot of time and a lot of uh you know runway in order to get right i think that's my one reservation about him but yeah it's based on what he showed last year what everybody has yet to show for the white Sox or in the majors recently among his competitors i would pencil him for a spot like it's just more a matter of you know is he healthy but you know he certainly proves he's healthy he's never been given his uh you know how many times he's led the leagues in games he's never unhealthy and he's always willing to pitch just more a matter of like after another year, is his stuff still there? And so far, like I would assume it would be uh, more so than all the other fringe relievers or maybe quadruple A guys in the way out uh, that he's competing with. Yeah. Uh, to Jim's point, Brian Shaw led the league in games appeared in 2014, 2016, 2017, and 2021. 81 games he appeared in for the Cleveland Guardians in 2021, half the season. Last year, 38 games for Brian Shaw. Like, that number snuck up on me. I know it was a lot of Brian Shaw in the second half. But, James, I didn't know that he finished 17 of the 38 games that he appeared in. Uh, I don't think he's going to get close to 50% ratio of his appearances where he's finishing the game in 2024, right? Like, 
he's not plan A to replace Gregory Santos as the closer. I would think if things, uh, you know, crack right. Uh, first of all, I've been just mystified looking at Brian Shaw's uh, draft because he's the same draft as Buster Posey and Gordon Beckham and Brett Laurie. Wow. Um, <laughs> but I, I think if you're trying to look at like kind of the other invites uh, that they have or maybe the other candidates, I would think maybe an ideal scenario or the most rosy thing you can think of is like, well, you've got Corey Knable in camp. That's a guy who's, if healthy, his ceiling actually uh, involves later inning work or high leverage work with, you know, playoff teams. Uh, you know, he's been an all-star closer in the past. That would probably be something where you think like, that's somebody who maybe takes over a high leverage role if he's healthy and things click right. Um, I think Dominic Leone's probably a tick under that, but there's certainly someone who probably has more recent experience working a lot of high leverage than, than Brian Shaw. Barlow would be, you know, as much as he's kind of got a vulnerable fastball that he tries to pitch around and that's going to be a high wire act. Uh, you know, he's certainly someone who thinks he's been working on uh, with Bannister as far as his timing and kind of shifting his hands and, you know, not losing some tension as delivery that he thinks if he really perfects, it could add another mile or two back to his fastball that he lost over the last year or two. I think you probably have some guys with a little bit more high leverage experience that you would hope would pop. Whereas Brian Shaw is kind of this, what's the name of that tape that the guy slaps on the the tank of water that you put on flex seal. He, he's almost like, right. He, <laughs> I saw it a boat in half. He's someone that if they were like, if this was like a, a team with like any designs on contention at all, I'd kind of almost worry that like Shaw is almost too user friendly for a manager that you, you very, I mean, someone with a lot more credentials than Pedro Gafol, Terry Francona, like drove his fans nuts with how much he used Shaw, even past the point of maybe the effectiveness of the prime of his career. So I think if there was, was really in a good situation, you'd almost worry that you know, overusing Shaw as much as like, that's always an option. And you're always negotiating guys being up and down during the season. And he's such like an easy fix to it. I don't know. I mean, it's unreasonable to project any 36 year old to be effective on 80 game one games usage, but just is just a season where, you know, throwing Brian Shaw to the thresher in, in favor of like someone else uh, is, is a reasonable solution because, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that you lose as many games as we all think you're going to lose. And that's not, you know, the, the worst punishment this year. Yeah, that's kind of how I foresee Shaw used uh, a lot of games where the White Sox are down by four going to the seventh inning. Here you go, Brian. Uh, get us to the ninth. Save the bullpen. And that's that's useful, especially with a lot of young arms that the White Sox have and with the veterans that they have in the non-roster invitees. We assume we'll start the season on the opening day White Sox. Uh, we'll, we'll see how close, I don't know, 70 games <laughs> Brian Shaw gets to in uh, 2024, but he's going to be used a lot by Pedro Gafal. Now, let's move over to some great work over the weekend, James, especially when you got a chance to meet the new director of pitching for the Chicago White Sox, Brian Bannister, and what he's aiming to fix with certain White Sox pitchers. Are you now imagining hula hoops around White Sox pitchers while watching their bullpens at camp? Trying to. I think if I was really good at that, I might, you know, I've gotten the job in player development, but here I am at Sox Machine instead. Um, <laughs> it, it's just something I feel like has, uh, it certainly clicked with at least, I guess, the connect selection of kind of down and out desperate men that uh, uh, is, is the like, connective theme of the, the White Sox, where it's guys who feel like they've been out of sorts for reasons they can't put their finger on. And having this guy say, like, let's embrace your natural arm slot and see what happens or, let's get let's look at 
video and see what we're, where your arm was at and where your path was when you were really clicking. And let's do that because a lot of times it's, or at least a lot of things we talked about specifically was guys kind of trying to accomplish something specific and um, that leading them away from just how their, their delivery should operate normally. So the one I wrote about was Copec. Uh, but another one we talked about specifically was Chris Flexen, uh, just because it's kind of so easy to visualize. Chris Flexen is like a really like shot put type or not shot, but like axe throwing. Josh Colementor for the Diamondbacks is who I think of. Like he's got this really high arm slot and release. So what Bannister was saying was that the Mariners went kind of sweeper crazy last year and they were kind of having everyone implement to see what would work. And by just by trying to do that, um, Flexen started going a little bit more to the side to try to get the side of the ball. And, and, you know, for some reason, some guys who are, you know, regular three quarters or low three quarters that came a lot more easily for them, but that didn't really click with Flexen. And it also kind of got him a little bit off his plane for, you know, how a lot of his other arsenal works. So it's sounds simple enough to try to just get a guy back up there, but, um, it, it that's seemed to be the crux of what he was saying was, where they think like that's what identified him as somebody like this guy was decent-ish and, and not decent in, in 2021 solid contributor uh and had success in the kbo kind of like eric fetty um both both eric fetty and chris flexen were being swarmed by uh south korean media on uh <laughs> on sunday which is like the minor league version of what's going on in dodgers camp is my japanese media but that, that was kind of an easy way of why they identified flexen as like hey if we got him back to his natural path Maybe this is a guy who becomes like a you know back end mid rotation starter again like he was in twenty twenty one. So um, if you imagine like twenty five more guys like that, uh, you know that that, that kind of gives you a view of what Bannister's work is. So Ethan Katz is expected back in camp this week. You know, his mother passed, and uh, you know condolences to, to him and their family. But um, what Bannister emphasizes is that he probably would have been this active, you know, he's in every bullpen, just chattering away, giving suggestions, even if Ethan were here, because like, this is his time to shine uh, where everyone's built up and, you know, we've been throwing all off season. They're ready to kind of see how stuff works that he suggests, but games haven't started yet. Uh, and they're not like, you know, I'm not, I'm not trusting this new thing. If it's going to get me hammered or they trust, they try the new thing he gives them and they go out and they get hammered and they never try it again. They're kind of removed from that little situation. So this is his time to strike with a lot of such projects and, uh, you know, Flex and Kopech, those are examples of that. But, you know, I, I think he's got some others. He's probably showing Mike Soroka, uh, Mike, Michael, not Michael. Don't make that mistake. Uh, a lot of stuff that he did back in, you know, 2021 or uh, before he, you know, tore his Achilles, however many times it wound up being. Yeah. So that was going to be my follow-up question. This idea of plane of rotation that Brian Bannister was referring to when he was speaking with you, that's going to be different for Every pitcher, right? Like yes. aiming for your natural throwing motion, it's not going to be a uniform throwing style. Like there are some, it, I've been watching, it's opening weekend for college baseball. And I heard a lot about pitching labs from some of the top schools. Like it seems like there's one idea. Let's all try to be uniform with our throwing mechanics because we know that this method works. This helps you max out your velocity, it seems like Bannister is zagging where, listen, if that doesn't work for you, well, it doesn't work for you. Let's just find what did work for you and try to be more natural about it. So, okay. So that, because that was going to be a follow-up to you. Cause if it's going to be different for every pitcher, 
that's going to be interesting watching this team throughout the season, right, James, just to figure out if these guys could find what works for them naturally. Yeah, because uh, I think especially like maybe when I first started doing this, like, like everybody was talking about forcing ride. And so it was a lot of coaches and players looking at videos of like who does the best forcing ride and they get up here uh, and backspin it. So I need to get up there too. And maybe if even if I take my axis a little bit to have to get up there, like, so be it, I want this like efficient thing. Right. And, you know, maybe some guys have the athleticism to kind of contort themselves and pull it off. But for a lot, like repeating and commanding when you're not on your, like your natural, you know, axis or arm path, uh, it's a challenge for a lot of guys. So, you know, someone like Michael Kopech who's running the trouble, who's been trying to throw like this perfect forcing fastball. Maybe that's part of the the equation for him, at least what's what Bannister thought is that he was a little too resistant to rotating to the side at the end of his delivery. He was really encouraging him to finish, you know, let his arm go across his body the way it's kind of wanting to every time and not be so obsessed with like, Oh, I can't, I have to be on top of the ball. I can't get the side of it at all. Um, so Bannister was saying that, you know, he was citing his experience with the Red Sox when they were playing the Rays is that they would come out and see a bunch of guys with different arm angles. And it felt like right as they were about to time somebody up or kind of get on plane with what they're facing, it would change. So out of a really diverse staff where everyone's throwing at different angles, you know, if you remember that, like, I think that graphic they used to have where all the Rays arms angles were different hands on the clock, that'd be, that's like his you know, ideal, uh, platonic ideal of what the pen would be. Now you can't just necessarily say that they've acquired all those guys and you don't want to contort guys to make them to fit that. But the idea is that everybody's going to be so diverse or different based on just, you know, respecting what their individual path was and maximizing it, that, that you're, you're going to, you know, have more diversity than if you just say like, I want all riding four seamers through the entire staff that one has become so commonplace that it's really more about what you can do that's unique and give hitters a different look than maybe you know doing this perfect execution of this one thing that became popular um but also you know, it's, it's it's something that a lot of hitters are just geared to swing at now where you're seeing the low slot guys have a lot more success just because it's unusual and that kind of uh reminds me that the white Sox now have the one of the rays uh minor league pitching coaches now at triple a in charlotte uh rc lichtenstein if that's how you pronounce it if it's the same as the country if it's different uh but yeah i mean so it, i really hope that's how it's yeah said. it'd be great uh it, it sounds like a fake name that he came up with while looking a map of europe and drinking a soda just uh <laughs> what's your name uh, rc lichtenstein uh yeah and then all his paperwork had to follow that exact uh choice he made uh but you know just seeing him come to the system it kind of makes some sense in terms of if some of these guys have to go down to charlotte and work on it that if you have a pitching coach who's used to working with guys who throw at different arm angles and slots and different hand positions uh then perhaps you know it's not a case of like trying to maintain everything you learned in arizona without having to like you know having Brian Bannister be for Brian Bannisters and be everywhere. Maybe it's somebody who's just more used to like being able to see a guy who's throwing slightly lower than another guy and say like, ah, that's fine. That doesn't throw me off. Another element that Bannister brought up is that, you know, the Sox are a little bit in a position where beggars can't be choosers. They can't be like, we only uh, want this certain type of guy. They kind of need to be able to take all comers because they don't have like this reputation as like fixers of pitchers. They kind of have to, take on whatever recommendation project they can and not really have these barriers or entry. Like, Oh, we're just, we don't, we only specialize in enforcing rider. We only are, we're only a sinker baller team. So as, as much as like some players have said, like, 
I feel like they're they're embracing a lot of guys who are sinker sweepers. I don't think that they're really trying to lock into having a specific type. Um, the, the, the age of everybody on the, the White Sox is going to be throwing cutters, uh, you know, mm -hmm. seems, seems to have gone past uh, at long last. I just find this topic fascinating, Jim, because now we, when we watch Michael Kopech during spring training, it's almost paying attention more on how he's throwing versus what the actual results are. And we know that most of the time we get throw out spring training results. We've talked about it over the years. Breaking pitches just don't work down in Arizona for X, Y, Z reason. We're more focused on how does the velocity look as pitchers get closer to opening day. If Bannister could get Kopech's fastball back on track, which that was a plus pitch in 2021 and 2022, not a plus pitch last year. Not only did James point out in his article at SoxMachine.com, did Kopech have a hard time commanding that pitch? Opposing hitters had a 462 slugging percentage against Michael Kopech and that four-seam fastball. So if it was in the zone, it got hit pretty hard. If that fastball comes back to his 2021 self, Jim, is that enough to convince you that, yeah, Michael Kopech should start the season as a starting pitcher? Yeah, I mean, like, when it comes to, the, like, that big question of starting or leaving based on how few starters they have or how many guys will have to be expected to pick up starts along the way, that if he stretched out used to it has a record of... Being effective or at least not getting killed when he's off his game, um, you know, he has some ugly lines, some really short outings, you know, 80 pitches over three innings, but he doesn't tend to cave in and get destroyed the way other guys can. So for now, that's an advantage. The hope is, you know, maybe by the you know second half of the season, there are more guys challenging for starting roles and so starts aren't necessarily a given but I think that you have to work with what you have at any given point and that's what the White Sox have right now so I would think like yeah as long as you know he's in the zone he's able to hit different spots in the zone with his fastball and slider uh, then I think like you know there's a chance of him sticking beyond we need him to start and you know the uh, point that James relayed from Bannister about like how he missed so often with his fastballs and, and other pitches mostly fastballs like up in the arm side yeah I, I looked on MLB film room and just like sure enough there's like a two sequence or, or two better sequence against the Tigers where he walked two guys and eight straight pitches and all the fastballs are basically either up or up and away. And so you could just see him uh, stopping the arm and, you know, not swinging all the way around, not following through the pitch and like, oh yeah, that's very easy to see. Reminds me of like Dylan Cease who had the opposite problem of just like spinning away too much, you know, throwing uh, a lot of fastballs in the left-handed batter's box. And, you know, that was a problem that he had to work and he still has to work occasionally to, uh, you know, minimize the amount that he does that. But the next time he came around spring training, like, oh, he's hitting more spots in the zone. And even though his like curveball uh, and, and slider weren't what they were, and we didn't know what the slider exactly would become, you could at least see with his fastball, able to hit, you know, uh, down and in, able to hit up and away. Like he was spotting it in different locations. He hadn't done it before. So I think with Kopech, it's going to be a similar exercise of uh, watch where the catcher setting up. Does he get the ball there or does he get the ball in different spots? spots when he misses is he missing in a different way or are all his misses the same I think that'll be what I'm going to be looking at and also probably just to see like you know how often he does that quick recoil of just like bringing the arm immediately back to where he doesn't finish the pitch we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all 
Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Yeah, no, really good points. And I'm glad you mentioned Dylan Cease, Jim, because as I was reading the article and we're having this discussion, like Cease came to mind with Bannister, like this invisible hula hoop. Is there something to that with the mechanics and the way that Cease rose that can get him to stop pulling that fastball so much into the left-handers batter's box and get him to where he's obviously aiming is that like top corner so he could get the opposing hitters to focus on that area and then just crush him with that devastating slider. Obviously, that's the goal, but he had a hard time getting ahead of hitters last year. Now I'm going to be watching Cease Jim with this invisible hula hoop and seeing if he could stay within his hula hoop. I feel like, you know, it, we talked about it before, I think, in different ways, but this is a case of, like, talking about invisible hula hoops. Like, this would be a great time for, uh, like, some, um, what, do, what do you call them, psychotropics <laughs> to uh, sponsor the podcast. Start seeing things that you didn't see before. Yes. Uh, if you sell those items, hit me up. Uh, <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be happy to add you uh, to the show. All right. So let's move on from invisible hula hoops. And let's talk about this new pitch, James, that Garrett Crochet is working on as he's trying to learn to become a major league starter. And one, I did like how he admitted that what everybody did last year for the White Sox and preparing for 2023, they're doing the opposite. If you slim down, they're bulking up. If you bulked up, they're slimming down. <laughs> Crochet told you that he lost about 20 pounds to get ready for this season. How does Crochet feel about where he is physically coming into 2024? Uh, he said, I feel like Crochet is, uh, you know, 
off the record like clubhouse chatter is like, like almost as informative as anything else um like the the harmless thing i overheard him saying was he's about to throw with copec and he's like arms feeling froggy today <laughs> and i just felt like that's probably not something he thought a lot during rehab but um he, he the whole idea was Garrett Crochet, I mean, he still is because he's so big and his head shaved and he's always wearing like sleeveless shirts. Um, but last year, Garrett Crochet, just utterly terrifying human, just the colossus of, of scale that I, I've never seen before. And I've, you know, covered NBA games now and it still sticks out. Uh, it's just, he was very built. He was very huge. And like, I get it. Like you're doing rehab. You're trying to like find a purpose during Tommy John rehab. You know, he just worked out. He just added strength. He figured if I add strength, that's like, you know, coming off a major injury, that's something he wants to have, especially if he's like going to be routed towards the bullpen. And he's like, you know, I'll have more power. I have more strength in my legs. He was big on adding strength in his legs and bulk in his lower half. Uh, which was visible through the uniform when he got back on the mound in, in several ways. But the idea was like he had more strength in his legs and going to take stress off his arm was, you know, the general concept he's going around. But he didn't feel like he was able to really get into, you know, the same delivery positions when they put him through biomechanical analysis as like ideal points in his delivery. He felt it was harder to get into it. So the idea is that now he's lighter, he's going to be more fluid, uh, you know, especially as a starter, maybe less thinking about like one-time explosion movements and more like having, you know, the body that you feel like you can move in the same way and repeat your delivery, you know, over the course of, you know, dare I say six innings at some point, I get a fresh outing, lasting that outing. We, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if such a thing has occurred uh, since 2019, but that, that'd be the, that'd be the dream at, at some point for it to occur. So I, I think he's feeling pretty good. He's being healthy. He's what he's not doing is promising triple digits because he didn't think he basically said like, the year I did that, I was just building, 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 building forever. I was just throwing in the backfields, just trying to build velocity, build strength. And he doesn't, but not ever competing in games. So he doesn't feel like that's going to be something he's going to be able to replicate. If you, especially if you stretch him out and put him in the starter role over the course of six months, that he's going to be able to reach the same peaks that he reached in, uh, you know, that his draft year. It would be really nice if he did that. Um, you know, the extra three miles of velocity really, really kind of adds something to the picture because it's not a fastball that you hear scouts saying has like a super unique approach angle or like this really like def definitive movement. It, it's just hard from the left side. Now, um, hard from the left side can do a lot. It's still going to be like a big pitch for him. I don't think it's like a vulnerable fastball that he needs to hide, but it's part of the reason why it's not just going to be like, you know, <laughs> I know he didn't have any walks his rookie year, but it was very much like, the Liam Hendricks version of not having walks where, well, behind in the count, time to challenge him down to pipe. And I don't think he necessarily has that heater uh, anymore. And his, he really describes this slider more and more as kind of a sweeper. So it's, it's, it's really something that it's maybe not that kind of, you know, firm bullet spin slider that, uh, you know, you, you throw to get on the hands of, of right-handers in the, maybe the more typical way. So that's what, why he's adding a new cutter and, since he's still kind of mastering the changeup, you know, like like most power pitchers are perennially trying to develop their changeup, he felt it was something that you know a little bit better or a little bit more suited to kind of getting inside a right-handed hitters, grabbing strikes and getting ahead, and not putting all the work on getting ahead in the count or you know challenging people in the zone on his heater, but you know something that could give him something else. Now. From hearing him chatter when he's walking off his live bullpen today, I know he threw a bad one to Adam Hackenberg that got 
taken deep. Um, I don't think uh, one spring training home run in inter-squad or in live BP means he's going to abandon the pitch, but it, it also speaks to it being something in development. But uh, it, it seems like something that you would add if you're trying to, you know, make a starter's arsenal where you can steal some pitches and then be more efficient and maybe not something that you would, you know, focus on if you're a reliever and everything's about wiping guys out and, you know, pitching in traffic a lot and, you know, keeping reducing contact as much as possible uh, the way he was pitching the last several years. Yeah, because in the, your article, he talks about his slider being more of a slow sweeper. So he's hoping that the cutter is like a good, happy medium between the fastball and his slider, especially against righties. And Jim, when I read that Crochet added a cutter, my initial thought was, Coop will fix him. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts about Crochet adding a cutter to his arsenal? Well, I thought you're going to segue to that earlier when we talked about like how the days of Don Cooper teaching everybody a cutter are over. And then like, speaking of cutters, here's a guy where a cutter is going to solve everything. Uh, Garrett Crochet, but we ended up going on a psychotropic uh, tangent. Well, we got to talk about Crochet's wagon. I yes. mean, that's a very popular topic on White Sox Twitter. He often gets compared to Adam Engel, who evidently also had a big wagon as the cool kids would say and uh it, it sounds like he lost 20 pounds so uh, james you could confirm the wagon is not as large as last year it's reduced i would say yeah okay. or maybe he's wearing like you know more well they did change the pants, pants. he still he filled up the little roll-up thing on his his uh his cuffs that like obscures how tight his pants are a little bit uh but i okay. I, I think it's reduced i think he's you know back towards like maybe Tommy Canley levels are a little bit below that, uh, <laughs> but, but not, you know, peak 2023 crochet, I, I would say. Yeah. I saw him in Birmingham and I thought like, is that Kevlar? Is he keeping state secrets in there that needs like protected? Uh, cause he, in person, like, especially like sitting behind home plates, like, man, you, know, you can see it from the front of him. Uh, it's weird, but, uh, so often they stick water bottles in there. You just assume that's what's in there and then it, there's no water. Yeah. <laughs> but uh so the cutter yeah, the cutter yeah that's what we're talking about before we got distracted um yeah the cutter like it's hard to know with crochet like how much of this is kind of serious and how much of this is humoring the experiment because it does seem and, and james alluded to this with pedro Grafol's comments about like they're going to need a lot of guys to soak up multiple innings because of various restrictions. Pitchers have various talent levels. Pitchers have, although he didn't really use you know, that specific word, but he said like, there are going to be a lot of opportunities for extended relief. And so even if crochet doesn't stick as a starter immediately, they might not have to send him to triple a or double a, depending on what kind of environment they want him to work in uh, to, you know, stretch out and get used to everything. And it seems like long relief would be a happy medium. So if he goes to like the two, three inning plan, then he doesn't really need that cutter. That is really just more like, you know, I think providing a different look if he's having to face a guy a second time. So, you know, until we see what the plans are, it seems like, you know, it seems theoretical or like on paper, yes, it makes sense to add a cutter, add a strike throwing pitch if you are a fastball sweeper and you don't like your changeup that much, you need something against righties, especially if you face them two or three times in a game. Sure, you know, point is granted. But if this is going to be like they want to satisfy his competitive instinct to show he can start and he wants to see if his body responds better to longer outings rather than just, you know, quick 
usage every other game and they figure like, yeah, you know, we'll let you pursue that and build up for it. In the meantime, we're going to have this uh, plan, plan A for us, plan B for you, and we'll see if we can make it work in a compromise. And so like the cutter just might be something where like, yeah, you kind of have to work on it if you're going to be starting and you need to do that now. But if it is like if if Adam, if the Adam Hackenbergs of the league are teeing off on it, then you could see like a case where, you know, it, there are only a couple more points to where like, yep, long relief, you know, like high leverage bridge work might be the role for you. I, I went back to like the well a little bit when Griffol, we were talking to Griffol, uh today about crochet and be like, so with all these guys you have stretched out, you'll need some like multi-inning relievers, right? And he's like, yeah, that would be a really useful role for us to have. And then I don't know if he like figured out what he's doing or thought he's going too far, but he's like, but we're not there yet in determining who's going to go in that role. So I was like, uh, you notice I asked that right after crochet. So I, I I still feel like that that settling point is in play for him. Leading the witness. My my follow up then to that point, Jim, is if Crochet is working out right now at camp, getting himself prepared for this experiment to be a starting pitcher, admitting that he's not working like the way that he did to get drafted by the White Sox in the 2020 MLB draft to impress everyone that he could hit 100 miles an hour. That ultimately, if he's still a reliever and he doesn't have that type of velocity, is he going to be effective as a reliever? Or is he just still stuck in between these two roles and what the White Sox have on hand in 2024 is still a below league average pitcher? no matter what the role that they put him in. Well, I think he's shown enough to where like, yeah, he fits well in any bullpen. He might not be saving games for any bullpen or just any bullpen. It'd have to be a series of circumstances. But if you can set aside the control loss or command loss that he had coming back from Tommy John surgery, and that'll come back to him, it's just a matter of getting fully back to where he was, then he should be fine. It's just not, you know, it kind of, goes back to the the Kenny Williams pick of Royce Ring and using a first-round pick for a reliever. Yeah, everybody realized that was a mistake when it happened or like, you know, basically like maybe a few months after it happened. And then you a decade later or so, then you go back to uh, drafting another reliever only. Different circumstances with the pandemic, with the White Sox making a push with like a whole lot of guys not being sure how they're going to bounce back or when minor league baseball will come back, college baseball, et cetera, to where like they, I think they were chasing a median outcome, which is like, if you have a reliever who spends 10 years in the majors, that's probably a median outcome for a first round pick, or at least like, you know, first half of the first round. So like I get the thought process, but it would be underwhelming, but I'm not too worried about like crochet, his stuff not working. I think it's more a matter of like, can he actually stay healthy? Cause it's been, he hasn't proven that yet in any role, whether starting or leaving to where like, will his body respond to the rigors of pitching over the course of a six month season? And so far the answer has been like, it's been tough. And, uh, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, because he had to seem like he had to stave off Tommy John surgery once after the, uh, the Oakland series uh, in 2020 and eventually has succumbed to it. Like maybe this is behind him and maybe it'll be a little bit uh, smoother sailing for the next year or two to get him on track to be like one full-time job, whether it is starting or leaving. And I think we're all leaning relieving. Yeah. Crochet is not, he's not alone in that camp of can my body hold up for a full regular season. There's uh, unfortunately many white Sox players on this roster that are 
in that wagon, along with Garrett Crochet, a different type of wagon. Uh, James Crochet, is he expecting an innings limit in 2024? Um, he kind of thinks like, yeah, that could happen. He doesn't okay. um, have one that he's is hanging over his head. He was kind of talking about like, he just wants to force the issue. Um, you know, he acknowledges that it, it could be a place. I think basically as an industry, we've moved away from innings limits to like, there are a lot more metrics that are on place to be like, Hey, this guy is falling off a cliff. You know, it could just be velocity, but you could see like extension or, uh, you know, spin X, like arm angle dropping there. I think there are ways to probably monitor his fatigue that go beyond just like saying, you know, at 120, we shut everything down at the same time. Would it be shocking if you went over 120? Yeah, probably. All of this is pretty surprising to me because I didn't think you could launch a starting transition off of 10 innings uh, the way you had last season. But uh, I, I think it's a bit more like they're going to have to blow past any reasonable limit that you would put based on projecting what he did just to extend him out at all. So I, I think it's it's going to be a lot of he's expecting it just like it's going to be monitoring me and me telling the train staff how I'm feeling and they how that's how it goes from there. And if there's a season where you can skip a guy in the rotation or shut a guy down for um, 10 days or, you know, do whatever you need to, to get him through without worrying about like the team needs him right now. Uh, this, this is probably that, that sort of season. Well, again, it's been great work from you, James and Jim as well, adding the additional analysis about, Michael Kopech and Garrett Crochet, definitely worth keeping an eye on, but also getting some insight from the new guy, Brian Bannister, in hopes of helping the White Sox pitchers get back on track. And if the defense is good, then we could really focus on it and just how many fewer runs the White Sox allow in 2024, and ultimately that should help with their win total going into the season. The last thing that we'll touch on in this podcast episode, and I'll put this out there now, we are expecting more information coming Later this week, there is an Illinois Sports Facility Authority meeting at Guarantee Rate Field at 10 a.m. Wednesday, February 21st. There's on the docket right now on the agenda quite a bit discussion about the current stadium for the White Sox. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker will be delivering his State of the State address at 12 p.m. Central Time on Wednesday. And there's a Chicago City Council meeting also on Wednesday. So when the story broke Friday night, Jim, from Crane, Chicago, and Justin Lawrence from Cranes wrote that story, and we'll be doing a podcast with him later this upcoming week. Uh, so even with these new t- new details, there's probably going to be more to the story. But Jim, a billion dollars. That is what Jerry Reinsdorf is asking for. And according to this story from Cranes, he is confident that he can get a billion dollars based on his plan from the state of Illinois. And I went down this rabbit hole when you wrote about this on SoxMachine.com, comparing it to what the Chicago Cubs and the Ricketts family had to go through. And it was before I moved to Chicago. So a lot of out of town stupid. And then I also didn't know Chicago politics very well in that Ricketts family asked for 200 million in 2010. Didn't get that. 
Three years later, they had to get permission from the city of Chicago to invest $500 million of their own money. But then again, they had to get permission because they were building a hotel. They were taking out that old McDonald's across Wrigley Field. They wanted to add 10 more night games. They wanted to add the scoreboard because they were butting heads with the rooftop owners. Like There was a lot of hurdles that the Ricketts family had to jump through just to renovate Wrigley Field, even though they were willing to spend their own money, $500 million, more than a decade ago, uh, they had to get permission from the city. And now here's Jerry Reinsdorf in 2024. And his grand plan is, I bet I could get a billion dollars for the state of Illinois for this project. How likely do you think this will happen based on uh, your vast knowledge of Illinois politics <laughs> and uh, more importantly, the vast knowledge of what happened last time? Jerry Reinsdorf approached Illinois for a new stadium. A lot has changed since the last time, uh, 1980s, with the whole, you know, the the threat to relocate the team, which was very real, with St. Petersburg having a dome that was ready for baseball, just needed a team, whereas, like, that's not looming over everything. So this does seem really excessive. And not only to ask for $1 billion as a starting point, but to say, like, you know, or at least have the story say you're confident about one billion. Just not even saying like, oh, let's, let's throw this out there as a right. starting point. I'm if I get four hundred million, I'll be happy. But I only get four hundred million if I set a really high bar, and then it looks like a compromise where I'm giving up something. One billion is like a huge ask, and it really seems like, you know, you need a lack of shame, which Reinsdorf, you know, he possesses. Like he just doesn't care what other people think. He's pretty sealed off from public opinion in that regard. So asking a billion dollars of public money uh, is probably something that does not keep him awake at night. So there is that element to it of just like, he'll do it and he won't feel bad about it. I, I think where I don't know, or I get hung up is like with the bears factoring into it and the bears maybe providing that opening to where like, yeah, well, you know, the financing of this will allow the city of Chicago to avoid some really onerous uh, balloon payments on uh, the debt that Soldier Field has accrued. Uh, and, you know, that bails him out of that. Is it that just kicking the can down the road? Is that something like Pritzker is fine with? Because like that becomes like uh, the next mayor's problem or the next governor's problem if it gets up that level of just like uh, if it if it the, the bill for that becomes uh, due 20 years from now, nobody who's currently holding position will be around to see it. So that's a problem for tomorrow guy. Right. Uh, that's the element where I don't quite know. And maybe that's the opening because Reinsdorf is pretty good at this when it comes to uh, getting uh, public money or not, you know, investing any of his own money into big projects that he benefits from. Like it's hard to, you have to give him the benefit of the doubt that he might be able to pull something off. Um, yeah. I, I just think it takes balls because like, given that he's never paid a hundred million dollars for a free agent or even like, you know, extending, he's never committed a hundred million dollars to a, a player and he's, you know, the White Sox are one of two teams has never done that. And, you know, he scoffs at signing, you know, Shiro Otani or Garrett Cole or anything like that. And then just to go like, yeah, $1 billion, gimme. And not seeing any kind of cognitive dissonance with uh, the reason why people aren't happy with him. There's never going to be the satisfying realization or epiphany that, oh, this is what it's like to be uh, a fan of my team. I see the error of my ways. It's just gonna be like, no, gimme. And then we'll see if that gimme comes true. Yeah. The reason I want to do a podcast episode with Justin, because there's this part in the story of cranes, as Jim mentioned with soldier field, 
And I would love to see the James Fegan eighth grade project on how close you were uh, to your estimate of how bad this deal is for Chicago and Illinois, James, because in 2003, the state authorized the ISFA to issue a $399 million bond to pay for the renovation of Soldier Field. 20 years later, there's $384 million in principal. In 20 years, the ISFA has only paid off $15 million on the principal. And right now, uh, the projected cost of Soldier Field is $55 million. And that is set to raise to $90 million in 2033. And what I want to ask Justin about, because these numbers that Related Midwest keeps bringing up, Jim, and you wrote about this too, like all this revenue this project is going to raise. In 2019, Chicago hotel tax revenue was $55.8 million. Four years later, despite having that NASCAR race downtown, despite COVID restrictions lifting, $41.2 million. A $14.5 million difference from 2019 to 2023 suggests to me that Chicago is still recovering from COVID. Like we're not back to where we were pre-2020 as a city. So if we're still not back to where we were pre-2020, I don't know about these estimates that related Midwest is bringing up. But like to Jim's point, James, it's kind of hard for White Sox fans that live in the city and the state. Like if you are... If you flat out refuse to make long-term investments in players to better the team, why should White Sox fans and taxpayers do the same for you on a new stadium? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you justify as a society uh, prioritizing uh, private sports teams the way that we do. Uh, clearly, we have an irrational passion for it as a society. Otherwise, I wouldn't be out here. Um, tailing a um, likely last place baseball team uh, with daily coverage uh, and, you know, taking the money of devoted subscribers to, to talk to Jordan leisure uh, at nine in the morning, but um, quiet James you're ruining it. And you wouldn't want to see my Chicago Metro history fair presentation because it did not have enough colors, which is why the, uh, uh, it got an 86 uh, score instead of 98, 99s from all the other teachers and kept me out of from going to the next round. But um, I, I think, you know, I don't want to say Jerry's like a shrewd businessman, but like, I feel like he's, he's going to explore what he can get away with. Uh, he's going to see, you know, how big of a deal, he, how good of a deal he can get. And I think he's going to, he's been pushing the envelope on stuff like this and, and using kind of aggressive tactics to get the last stadium. And it's, it's not surprising that he would kind of, go to the mat and see what the limit of what he can push for this. I, you know, I, I think before the price tag came, there was probably a lot of excitement about the renderings of, of, of the stadium. And that, you know, a, a refurbished ballpark would probably get a lot of momentum and a lot of enthusiasm around the team, you know, even without results. I'd probably be a lot easier if they were coming off of four straight playoff appearances to be like, well, this is a team that's bought a lot of goodwill and we wanted them to stay. So maybe this is a pill they have to swallow, but especially as much as people will say online, like go to Nashville, we don't need this. I, I think it would probably be a lot of, uh, uh, be very heart wrenching to see the move in, in any way. Or I think testing the pressure of how much resolve there is to keep them in town is something that's paid dividends for him in the past. And I don't see why he wouldn't go back to that. Well, at least in initial steps like this, uh, to see the, um, 
the, the limits of it. And, you know, if he says he's confident and that's, you know, coming from him, you know, he's, he's had enough success in this realm that I, I, I can't dismiss it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be sit here and say like, there's no way he gets that money because he's gotten stuff like this in the past. And a lot of owners across the league have got stuff like this in the past, maybe not to the scale, but it, it wouldn't shock me. Yeah. I I'm curious on how these meetings go. Pritzker's definitely going to be asked about this. Uh, we'll see if Brandon Johnson, the mayor of Chicago is asked about this. Uh, if he does meet with the media after the city council meeting on Wednesday. So the next time we have a podcast together as us three, we're going to learn more about the government side on what this proposal is from the Chicago white Sox and related Midwest to the state of Illinois. And if Illinois says no, because even if finances are getting better on the state level, they just don't have a billion dollars to hand over, or they just don't have the appetite to extend taxes or increase the amount that the ISFA can borrow. I'm wondering how the White Sox pivot. Like that's the question I leave for podcast listeners and for us to, to contemplate. Does Jerry Reinsdorf have a billion dollars in liquid? Like, does he have the ability to sell finances like the Ricketts family was able to do around Wrigley field? And I don't know the answer to that question. So if Illinois says no, and it's a hard no, we can't help you on that front. We'll do whatever else we can, but we can't give you a billion dollars. Is this project dead, Jim? Like that's the that's the lingering question that I have. And when I record with Justin, that's going to be a question I pose to him. Like, is there a plan B? Like, we definitely know this is plan A for the White Sox is to move to the South Loop. I don't think there's a plan B yet. Uh, the way the uh, idea was rolled up, I'm related Midwest standing in front of everything, being the ones that were holding the meetings, giving the quotes, issuing the renderings, made it seem like the White Sox were going along for the ride. So this might've like popped up on them earlier than they thought. I know they're exploring it. And that's why they floated the idea of Nashville and you moving out to the suburbs and various, you know, kind of possible sites, explorations, ideas. But if related Midwest, like, oh, you're exploring, I got something for you. And the White Sox are like, sure, uh, we'll, you know, we got, you know, we still have a, a perfectly fine ballpark and we're still have a lease that runs for another six years. And we could probably extend it if need be, because uh, it's in the state's interest to keep using the ballpark for baseball rather than build something new. Like it's a good situation to be in. So uh, they have time on their side. So, you know, my, what I would be interested in seeing is like, if they, if this kind of blows up or, you know, something else more cost effective takes its place, uh, do then the White Sox start using this to threaten or maybe like, you know, kind of uh, insinuate more about like looking elsewhere. I could see, you know, given how little Reinsdorf cares about like public sentiment and is more about just getting um, the most favorable deal for him and his investors. You know, I, I'm inclined to say like, oh, you might see the elbow sharpen a little bit about uh, getting his way. But I think right now there's probably a case of like, Related Midwest and the White Sox see a window to maybe horn in on some public funds before the Bears can get to them. And so maybe this is why they're doing it now. And then if this doesn't work out, uh, then they'll continue on the original plan of just exploring sites and ideas. I, I will give Related Midwest and the White Sox a little credit here. Uh, I like their chances a lot more than the Chicago Bears getting public funding for a new stadium. Man, so much money out on Soldier Field and... We'll see on the updates again. We'll have another podcast episode talking about this particular topic, especially the TIF funds that are related to Midwest. Really interesting. 
Some of that money is going to be used to build a new CTA redline stop uh, on this land. So really opens up the other possibilities as far as transportation to the stadium. I know that's been a pretty popular topic as well. And we'll hear again from the politicians and maybe we'll even hear from the ISFA as well on Wednesday about their thoughts regarding this proposal. Do you, do you think like they could make a successful ad campaign like around me? Like if they yes. show video of me like freezing when the Sox were clinching the playoff spot in 2020 because the wind was blowing the press box, they put like that Sarah McLaughlin song over it. And they're like, don't you think he'd be much happier here? And then they show the renderings of the ballpark on the, on the riverside. If you're cold, he's cold. Yeah, that's, I was just going to bring that up. <laughs> the coffee machine like broken again. Let him in. <laughs> Well, again, when we get more news, we'll report it on SoxMachine.com. We'll also talk about it on the podcast. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. You can follow us on social media. We're on all the platforms at Sox Machine. You can follow James on Twitter if you're not already as he continues to provide updates of what's happening at Camp for the White Sox at J.R. Fegan. And you can follow me on those platforms at Sox Machine underscore Josh. You can subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts such as Spotify and Apple Music. And also subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. There'll be some videos up there. I watched a lot of college baseball over the weekend so I'll post those highlights on our YouTube channel in the upcoming days. As Jim mentioned at the beginning part of the show, if you want full access to all of our coverage of the Chicago White Sox, sign up at patreon.com slash machine. Monthly plans start at $5, and there are additional tiers as well with additional perks. Our $25 month tier, they're going to be having a chance on Monday to join a Zoom meeting and be able to have informal conversation with James about what's going down in spring training for the Chicago White Sox. And we still have some spots open in our veterans committee as well. We have about six spots open. So if you enjoy your work and you want full access, you can get that for just $5 a month. But if you want more from us, there are those options as well. Check them out at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all of things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside James Fegan and Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. Mm-hmm.